keep it up. All right, this morning, Daniel chapter six is where we're going to uh, be. Um, this is probably one of the most familiar uh, stories, uh, accounts in Daniel. It may be one of the most uh, recognized accounts in scripture in general. Uh, this is where we encounter Daniel in the lion's den. And we're going to get into that this morning. Um, we're not going to finish uh, this chapter, but we're going to get into it. We're going to look at Daniel and the lions. And I want to this morning, though, just kind of look. There's, it's really a threefold lesson. There are three things, in my opinion, that the, the Lord is going to instruct us in as we study through this chapter. First, the circumstances surrounding Daniel being sentenced to the lion's den. And I put that down as a specific lesson for us because he's put there, and, and, and it's part of what we're going to talk about this morning, he's put there and the circumstances surrounding that are for you and I a lesson because we encounter people with the same heart as Daniel is encountering. In addition to that, we have the faith of Daniel, which is probably one of the greater lessons to be learned. And then third, and probably the greatest lesson, is the faithfulness of God to deliver Daniel. And because the first lesson for you and I is a significant and a uh, all too familiar uh, thing in the world around us, we find that the faith of Daniel and that example, and that the faithfulness of God to deliver Daniel are key lessons and encouragements for us. So let's look at the context. The first three verses kind of give us the context. It pleased Darius to set the kingdom, to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these three presidents of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the kings should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. So just, just keep in mind, right? We have Babylon has fallen to the Medes and Persians. That's happened. Darius is the ruling king. He's the one that came in. He was conquering. And here he is. He's the ruling king there uh, in the kingdom of the Medes. Uh, the Persians are, it's all kind of one as far as prophetically concerned, historically. Uh, the Persians take over the Medes effectively. and so. Uh, and there's this establishment, and this is very common uh, in both the Median and the Persian Empire. This is kind of what they do when they conquer a place. They establish, uh, historically, you'll hear them called satraps. Um, they're the governors that are, that are being, um, excuse me, the princes, rather, princes that are being referenced. They're, they're, all they are is a provincial governor. This is the region you're going to be the governor over. So that's be, they're being established. And then we have these presidents, and they're sort of a regional overseer. They're going to have these uh, provincial governors will report to them, and they're established to sort of oversee that, and, and they receive accounts. As it says there in verse 2, that the king should have no damage or loss is what it means. So they're doing the books. They're the ones that are watching over, making sure that nobody's taking unfair advantage of the position they've been put in. And Daniel is chief of the presidents, and in fact, as we get uh, to verse 3, it says that he was preferred above the presidents of the princes because an excellent spirit was in him. His wisdom, the understanding that God has given him, is known. It's renowned. 
Here is a conquering uh, empire coming into Babylon, and even they take the opportunity to establish him in a rule, in a position of leadership. And it says that the king in the end of verse three fought to set him over the whole realm, not only just to make him chief of the presidents, but sort of make him second in command. Okay, this is this is the government. This is the structure. This is how it ends. If you read through, uh, you know, history, you're going to find. Uh, so here we have, what, 120 princes. They added a few more. Uh, by the time they get to the Persian Empire and, the, and all of those things, that's when Cyrus is ruling at the end of the Babylonian captivity, there's 127. You know, don't, don't get caught up in the little details like that. There's usually an explanation, and that is the explanation. They added some. And no big deal. But here we are. This is the governmental circumstance that Daniel finds himself in. And I'll just put you in remembrance that God has told them, wherever you are, Daniel, and nation of Israel, or excuse me, kingdom of Judah, wherever you are, seek the peace of that city. Be engaged in that. Be a participant in what's happening there. And don't be those that are causing trouble. Um, that's something that he has commanded them. And so here we have Daniel, again, being in that position, doing those things that God has called him to do. Um, let's get to verse four. It says, then the presidents and the princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. All right, so here's the word of the day. I learned this word this week, malversation. Malversation. It's like conversation, only bad. Mad, mal being bad, malversation. What it means is corruption, especially those who are, in, who are ruling, right? So now when we talk about corrupt politicians, we're going to talk about malversation because that's what it means. Here's the thing. This is the assumption. They're looking for an occasion. They're looking for anything that they can accuse Daniel to the king. And the, the assumption is that we're going to find something. We have the same, they're looking for the same malversation, the same corruption that they know is among them. You know, when you buy a car, and then all of a sudden you start seeing that car everywhere. It's not that there are more of them on the road all of a sudden. It's just that you're aware, more aware of it. And it's the same idea here. That we are more aware of the sin that we harbor in those around us than the sin that they may be harboring. We're more cognizant of it. It's always on our mind. It's something that maybe we're struggling with. Or maybe it's something that we're trying to hide. Whatever the circumstance may be. We are aware of it, and so we see it readily in other people. We recognize the symptoms. Those, that's what's happening here. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. <clears throat> Let's look at verses 3 through 5. Jesus is here speaking, um, and he's, he's really in the context of judgment, of condemning others. That is, that is what he's talking about. And he says, why beholdest thou the moat or the, the speck, the little piece of dust that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? 
Or wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. So this is exactly what's happening. We see that this, this that is happening in these people over here, and we see it as a big deal. We condemn it. We're against it. Let me help you fix it. And it may be exactly the same struggle of sin that we're having, but in somebody else, it's a beam. When in reality, it's a beam in our own eye. It's something that we need to be cognizant of. It's something that we, but we, we look at others with a more critical mindset, with a more critical heart than we look at ourselves. It's part of our sin nature. If I can defer people to somebody else's sin, somebody else's failing, they won't see mine. And Jesus is corrective of that. He says, listen, you need to pay attention to what's in your own eye. Pay attention to what's going on in your own life. Where is your heart? And as I said, it's in the context of condemning others. He says, judge not that you be not judged in, in verse 1. He said, you are going to be, uh, don't condemn others because you have the same thing within you. So deal with that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and we usually look at it from a positive standpoint uh, as we get to the end of the verse, but this is what it says. There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common demand. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it or to stand under it, right? So we look at the second part. God is faithful. He's made a way out, right? That's, that is true. But what I want to focus on this morning is this common temptation, now, it doesn't mean that sin necessarily, but what it means is that when you and I are hit with temptation or when we engage in sin, that isn't something new or unique to any one of us. And circumstances or the life that we may find ourselves in is going to have common temptation, just as there's common temptation with all of these princes and all of these presidents to be corrupt and to exploit the position that they found themselves in. And therefore, they're looking for it in other people. They're looking for it in Daniel, and their assumption is that they're, it's, they're going to find it. Our sinful nature does not want to acknowledge itself. I mean, it's, it's Jesus talked about it in John chapter 3. We at some point come to faith in Jesus Christ and we are accepting of our sinful nature, but it doesn't mean that we are always accepting of it. We don't want to make the same judgment of ourselves that we want to make of other people. Okay, so eye of the beholder here... <laughs> Here, the sinfulness, right? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but here, the sinfulness is in the eye of the beholder. And we want to make sure that we are uh, that we are looking at things correctly. Jesus, excuse me, 
Paul wrote about in Galatians. He says, listen, you who are spiritual, and he's talking about your brother, your sister in Christ, who is caught in sin. They're struggling with it, and it's discovered, and here it is. And he says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. But he says, consider yourself first. Watch out. Make sure that if you have anything that you need to own up to, that you have owned up to it. Make sure that you are preparing yourself so that you don't fall into the same sin. There's warning about that. These men that are trying to trap Daniel are looking for something that they know exists within themselves. They know the common temptation that they all face, and they assume that they're going to find the same Daniel. We as believers have to deal with this. And I say that because, and when the moment you say that, is you, you, know the, you know that you're a hypocrite because you know that, man, there's things that I haven't dealt with. There are things that I have wanted to hide. There are things that I, uh, I'm unwilling to acknowledge or that I like to point out in other people. We know that this is a struggle for us. But we have to deal with this and because it's part of the witness that we have. In John chapter 3, verse 21, as Jesus is talking about people not wanting to come to the light, because they would rather not be discovered. He says in John chapter 3, verse 21, that all those who, are, who believe in Christ, he says, but he that does truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. That should be the, the, the MO, the modus operandi, the way we operate for believers is that we would come to the light and people would recognize what's happening. Now, the world around us is quick to see what they see in themselves, this hypocrisy, this, I want to be a good person, but I know that I'm not. And that's what they point out. We as believers have to be coming to the light and saying, listen, yeah, I realize that I'm not perfect. We have to acknowledge and, and confess the sin that we hold as part of our witness. Our conduct, the way we behave ourselves, those things that we are going to uh, put out there in front of people, whether we are wanting them to see it or not, are part of our witness. In Philippians chapter 2, turn there with me for just a moment. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, starting in verse 14, it says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we're going to operate differently. We're going to do everything that we do without murmuring and disputing. Why? That we might be blameless, that we might be harmless that we are recognized as the sons of God, those that are above rebuke. There's no correction to be made of us because we've already corrected ourselves. The Holy Spirit within us has said, listen, this is something that we need to not be murmuring about. This is something we shouldn't be disputing about. That in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation, we would shine as lights in the world. Whether it's at work, or whether, and, and we 
engage in the same complaint process and the same moaning and groaning about this thing or that thing that might be happening. Or whether it's as we drive down the road and somebody is driving too slowly or driving too fast or they didn't use their blinker or whatever it might be, if we engage in things just the same way that the world around us does, we've murmured and we've disputed. We are not standing out as lights in the darkness. And I'll tell you, I'm as guilty as anybody. I am a complainer. I, I, I whine and complain and I have an, an opinion about everything. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to have an opinion, but the way that it's articulated. I'm also one that is quick to point out that they must not have put blinkers on that model or whatever. I mean, I, I'm right there with you is what I'm trying to say. And those are small things. Those are relatively small examples. They're, 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 they're consequential, but they're in the grander scheme of things. Maybe they're somewhat inconsequential. But I don't suspect that Daniel was sitting around. Here he is, right? He's, he's third in the kingdom of Babylon. Just before, right, Belshazzar, he rewards him for reading the handwriting on the wall. Even though Daniel didn't want the reward, he was giving it to him anyway. And now he, he's brought in to this other administration with a whole different way of doing things and a whole different way of operating. And I don't think that Daniel is probably laying around complaining and disputing and murmuring. And that's not what we get. He was faithful, it says. Even in these small things, Daniel wasn't one to not shine his light. So whatever it may be, maybe we are fed up with the, well, Thursday night, right? We, we had our little Avon party. And it was simple and short, and it was fun and enjoyable. But we took just a few minutes and we looked at Scripture. This is what Christmas is about. We did something knowing that, hey, we, we do have concern about what Christmas has become. And I can complain about it, and I, and I have in the past. I'm kind of a notorious Scrooge. Ask my family. And that's part of it for me. So rather than complain about it, let's, let's try to do something. We can use it as a means to, to share the gospel. We can use it as a means to refocus our hearts. We can use it as a means to encourage others to... Right? It was one thing, it was small, but we can do something different. In 1 Peter chapter 2, turn there with me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. <clears throat> there we go. It says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, there's two things happening here. Number one, you have those who are outside of faith that are speaking against you. Having your conversation honest, whereas they speak against you as evildoers. 
That's what they're saying. You're hard-hearted, you're whatever you, you might be. And we can fill in the blank with a lot of the societal ills that we find today. Those are things that are being said. Well, you're, you're hateful because you're not accepting of this, or you're spiteful because you're not accepting of that. Fill in the blank. Says that we're, they're going to speak against you as evildoers. You are evil for the position that you hold, which is in accordance with God's word. So that's the first thing that's happening. And I say that's the first thing that's happening because it's happening, period. There's an enemy in this world, and it stands against the things of God across the board. And there, and there is this innate nature within man to suppress the truth of God and to not acknowledge it, and to not have anything to do with it, to not let it shine into the, its light into the heart, and, and to be receptive to that. So we have those two things sort of working together, working against the things of God. It is happening. They are speaking about you and I as evildoers. I was taking a, on a drive with uh, Matt just uh, what a week and a half ago, something like that. And one of the things that we were talking about was an article that he had read, and it was in Finland. I think it was pretty sure it was Finland. And there was this pastor, and he was put in prison. And we were talking about that, and he's like, in Finland of all places, you know, I'm like, Matt, there's people in Canada that are in prison because they preached against homosexuality, because that's what the Word of God says. And I said, and it's illegal to speak on some of those things. You will go to prison. And I said, that's 12 hours away. And I know I've said that here before, but it's already happening. The world around us already speaks about you and I as believers, those who would trust in the authority of God's word as evildoers. It's happening. But there are some other things that are happening in this verse. He says, listen, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. And that means more than one thing. It means that we are, first of all, we're not ashamed. We're having honest conversation. This is really what I think. And it doesn't matter what the consequence may be. But it also means that the way that I'm conducting myself, that the way I'm behaving is consistent with the biblical example that we see in Christ. That even though I may not be accepting of that sin, and that I, I can't condone it because it is sin, doesn't mean that I don't love the person, doesn't mean that I'm not engaging with them in, in a way that is meaningful and substantive. Doesn't mean that I, you know, they're not on my Christmas card list anymore. And it says that as a result of our good works, not the things that we said, but the result of the way we live our lives in light of the truths of Scripture, Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 5, right? They're going to see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. What they have is a clearer and a more consistent picture of the love and the, 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 the mercy of God, the grace of God that is extended to all people in Jesus Christ that we talk about. And Jesus didn't condone sin when, they, when the woman was caught in adultery and they brought him before her. He didn't condone sin. What did he say to her at the end? Go and sin no more. He didn't say, hey, whoa, you, you know. But he also addressed the heart of the people who were making the accusation. You who are without sin, cast the first stone. He didn't condone it, but he sure showed compassion. He sure showed mercy and grace. And he did so in such a way that, was, that spoke very loudly to this crowd of accusers because they left. First Peter 
says, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, that you that they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Having a good conscience. What that means is that I know with certainty that the way that I've behaved is a clear reflection of Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean that it was accepted. Doesn't mean that they were, I mean, they're still speaking evil of you as an evildoer, but it's falsely. And it says in the end, they will be ashamed. Because it's a false accusation. I'll just share this with you. And it's, it's, as we get into this theme, it's a hard truth. But if you go through and you look at those that are making these accusations, it's false. And because we have a world that is stacked against us, in a sense, they're accepting of those false accusations. They're on board with that. By standing firm, by having a clear conscience, I cannot tell you that it will ensure that we will be delivered from every circumstance. That's not what's being promoted here. That isn't the, the truth that is coming across. If you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs or you've ever read Jesus Freaks or anything like that, there are those who are falsely accused and they are put to death for their faith. But even that giving of their lives, that last measure of devotion they can give to the Lord, even give the giving of their lives stands as a witness and a testimony to the truth and the veracity of what they stood for, what they claimed to have believed. And God in his infinite wisdom and his ways being higher than our ways knew that that brought him more glory and more people to faith than their continued preaching. And that we know with assurance. We know it to such degree that we have the, the, the saying that the, upon the blood of the martyrs, the church has been built. Because wherever we find revival, we find it, in historically preceded by persecution and hardship and false accusation and evil speaking of those who are in the way, as, as we would read in Scripture, those who are believers. These guys are looking for something that isn't there. And Daniel is zealous to stand and to represent the living God in this world around him. And he's going to be falsely accused. Verse 5 in Daniel chapter 6. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Daniel's reputation was such, uh, at the end of verse 4 there it says, for as much, they couldn't find any occasion or fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. He had a sterling reputation. His reputation was, was this, the faithfulness to God, including his service to the king, Right, that, that if I'm going to serve God, who has commanded me to seek the peace of wherever I'm at, I'm going to serve God, which is true of us as well, right? We are submitted to those higher powers that God has established. That we honor those that, that are due honor, as God has commanded us. The basis of our good citizenship as believers is obedience to the Lord. And it was the same with Daniel. His faithfulness, his good reputation is based upon his faithfulness to God, including his service to the king. And the same should be true of you and I. 
talked about it earlier, but false accusations are common. We read about them throughout Scripture. In Esther chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me, Esther chapter 3. Just by way of reminder, right, Esther is, comes after Daniel chronologically in Scripture. Uh, but here is in Esther chapter 3, verse 8. We have Haman, right, the, the, the sneaky little gourd running around accusing all the Jews. And he says to the king Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the law, king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. Now, here's the thing. There are people scattered abroad and dispersed amongst all the provinces of the kingdom. That's true. And it says they have different laws, and that is also true. God has given them their own set of laws. And it says that they don't keep the king's laws. And that is not true. There's this little bit of truth, this little bit of, of leading along, and then there's this false accusation, and it says it's not for the king's prophet to suffer them. This is going to cause you hurt. And that isn't true. It isn't true. It wasn't true in Haman's day, and it isn't true today. If we right here's the thing: we look at all of the the things that are happening, and we look at our country, and we have a different perspective, granted. We have a different worldview because it's rooted in truth. It's rooted in what God, the creator of the universe, has said, the ultimate higher power that we are submitted to. And, he's, and if we take the truths and the principles of Scripture, and we put those into practice on a, on a level that is, that is big, right? we say, listen, we're going to eliminate unjust laws. We're going to eliminate those things. And, and we begin to scale things back. What are we going to reap as a result? We're going to reap the good things that come from all of that. Here's the wisdom of God put into practice, and we see that happen. You know, uh, John Calvin at one point was in charge of, um, I'm going to say Amsterdam, but I, it's like I say that, and I'm like, no, that's not right. It's a city that started with an A, and I apologize that I have spaced that. But he was sort of the ruler. He was put in charge. He was the mayor. And so he said, listen, what we're going to do is we're going to have biblical principle, and that's going to rule. And in the time that he was in charge, and they, they put that into practice, and that was how they operated, that city flourished. It flourished. Might have been Geneva. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> there's a museum there. There's a whole, and I, I'm blanking that. Okay. But it flourished because they took the principles of God, they put those into practice, and they reap what they've sown. We have a different perspective, we look at things differently. but it isn't because we've come up with these ideas on our own. It's because the creator of the universe whose ways are higher than our ways so much so that we can't understand them has given them to us. And when the world outside looks at that and says, man, that's pretty radical. 
which is we're considered radical. It's not new. It's always been considered radical. It's always been considered something that, you know, boy, we really got to be careful of and watch out for. In John chapter 19, could have gone to really almost any of the gospels, but John chapter 19, here is Jesus on trial before Pilate. And the only reason that he's there is because he's been falsely accused and, and this, this false accusation and this speaking of Jesus Christ, the, the promised Messiah, the God incarnate holiness, period, that's him. He is righteous. He is perfect. And yet he's falsely accused. And it says, verse six, when the chief priests, therefore, and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says to him, take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered, we have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. We have this false accusation, whether it's we have the false accusation of God by the serpent there in, in the garden. We have the false accusation of Haman. We have the false accusations of Christ. We have the false accusations of you and I and believers past. We're going to be spoken of as evildoers. And we have to deal with that in many respects, like I said, we have to accept the sin that we have. We can avoid hypocrisy by acknowledging our sinfulness. And on the other side of that, we're going to endeavor to live a life that is consistent with the profession of our faith. The world is out there trying to suppress the truth, trying to hold it back. And just as Jesus said in John chapter 3 that the world doesn't like it, this is condemnation, that man loved darkness rather than light. This is exactly what's happening. This is their motivation. This is their heart. They don't want to talk about it. We don't like that Daniel is being promoted. Why would he be promoted instead of me? We can't have that kind of thinking being second in command. We can't have that kind of radicalism infecting the king. How is that going to work out for us? And we hear those same kinds of themes even today. We find those same kinds of accusations. We find those same kinds of, uh, you know, well, that's awful small-minded. However it's phrased, it still happens today. And I would expect that it probably might happen even more today than it did in the past. Knowing that it, as, as we get closer and closer to the return of Christ, we're looking at the degenerate nature of mankind. And even more, they don't want to acknowledge the truth. So much so that they'll heap up teachers who will tell them exactly what they want to hear. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 5. I want to look at verses 11 and 12. 
Jesus says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when all when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner, <clears throat> all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. How does Jesus say that we should interpret the persecution and the false accusation that we are inevitably going to face? He says, count it blessing. Count it blessing. Blessed are you when people revile you, when you are persecuted falsely for my sake. Now, if we're being persecuted for those things, you know, and it's true, then, hey, you know, that's, we're deserving. But here we are, we're standing for the things of God. We are persecuted for righteousness sake. This is the gospel. We're standing upon the truths that Jesus himself has proclaimed that are recorded in the word of God. And that's when people will come against us. That's when they're going to speak evil against us. That's when we're going to face persecution and hardship. And he says, blessing, that is blessing to us. Now, it, 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 there's future blessing that we're looking forward to that, to that reward coming, that reward up there where, hey, well done, good and faithful servant, come on in. There's that expectation that's coming, but there's also blessing in this life. Whenever you see the disciples in the book of Acts and they're, they're falsely accused and they're persecuted and they said, hey, don't, don't preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And what do they do? They, well, we're going to follow God instead of you. You decide if that's right or wrong, but hey, this is what we're doing. And what do we find them doing? They go rejoicing. Why? Because they, they, they were counted worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. And everywhere you see persecution happening in Scripture, you see celebration, you see rejoicing, you see it does a couple of things for the church. Number one, it weeds out the fakes. Because they're not going to stand for it. This whole Christianity thing that was really good and making me feel good on a Sunday morning because, you know, soothe my conscience is all well and good. But man, when they're, you know, throwing things at me as I enter the church building, no, I think I'll just not go to church anymore. I'm out. Or whatever the case may be. It's going to weed out the fakes. The other thing that it's going to do, there was an instance that I, there was an incident. What was the, I think it was during World War II and the Germans, there was a church and they were meeting. It might not have been during World War II, but anyway, they came in and here's this whole church and they're meeting and they're, they're going to be in trouble. It might have been in Russia under Stalin's rule, one way or the other. True story. They come in and they're really, you know, just harsh. You know, you're going to have to recant right now or you're going to prison. And so, I mean, several people within this little church recant and they, they just leave and they let them go. And then the, the soldier in charge, he's like, okay, we're believers too. We just had to get rid of whoever we couldn't trust. If you're willing to stand for Jesus Christ in the face of persecution or death, we're going to fellowship with you. Anybody else could have been a spy. They didn't know.
Jesus says, interpret that as that persecution, that false accusation as blessing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to harden our faith. It's going to make it firm and unshakable because we see the goodness and the faithfulness of God in the midst of it. The other assurance that we have, if you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 3, is the justice of God. That he is going to, nobody's getting away with anything. And I think that sometimes we as believers, we, we like to say, well, we stand on our little soapbox and we're offended because there are all these evil things happening and God seems to be silent. And, you know, God, first of all, who are we? To, <laughs> we don't get to say to the potter, what are you doing? He is sovereign. He is just. He is provident in all of creation. And so just trust. Nobody's getting away with anything. We aren't and they aren't. And so we need to step off of our soapbox and we need to come alongside the Lord in the ministry opportunity that is before us. If that is something that is that, that, that brings, ignites within you that much concern, maybe God has a plan for you in that. Maybe you're part of addressing it. Maybe you're part of engaging that segment of culture, whatever that thing may be. Maybe not. Maybe because of your position, you need to step back. But one way or the other, I'm just saying we have the opportunity to look at things differently, and we should. God is in control. Isaiah chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 says, Say ye to the righteous, that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Okay, first of all, we have that assurance. That say it is well to he who is righteous, because you'll eat of the fruit of your doings. And then on the other side of that, in verse 11, he says, Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his, of his hands shall be given him. We read it differently in the book of Galatians. It says, Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And it also cautions us in the book of Galatians, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Nobody's getting away with anything here. We have the full assurance that God is completely just. We are not the arbiters of justice. God is. But we are his representatives to a lost and dying world. We are those who are tasked with sharing the gospel with those people around us. We are unashamedly going to stand for truth. We're unashamedly going to let our reputation be completely upheld by the Lord, even if there's false accusations of persecution coming as a result of standing firm doesn't matter. But it's not my job, nor is it your job to say, listen, we have to fix this problem. You're not getting what you deserve, so therefore, this is what we're going to do. That's not the message that we were told to take. We're told and given the ministry of reconciliation. And don't misunderstand. That's not to say that we don't address the culture, that we don't engage in those discussions that we don't try to bring about change that is positive. But we're not the executors of justice. 
In Hebrews chapter 6, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We have to trust that God is sovereign, that he is just, that he stands there, that he is doing everything that he has promised to do, that he is using you and I for his glory, no matter what the circumstance may be. That our reputation, what people think about us, how they interpret us, whatever that that is in his hands. And as we read what Paul writes, he says, listen, whatever I know that I can trust in whatever I've given to him, he's going to keep it until that day. And my reputation is in his hands. Just as Daniel, here he is. He stands differently than the rest, so much so that they hate him. They make false accusation. They don't want him to be that radical leader who's somehow influencing the king. But in faith, he knows that God is, that he has to believe, that he has to walk in trust. If we jump down to verses 26 and 27 in, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, it, speaking of Moses, it says that he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures in Egypt. I just want you to consider, here's Moses. He's raised effectively as the grandson of Pharaoh. I mean, the, the world is his oyster at that point. But he chose, and what did he choose? He chose the reproach of Christ. That's significant. I mean, here's Moses. He's thousands of years before the birth of Christ. He's, he's even before the nation of Israel has become a great people. They're just sort of a family group. I mean, there's a lot of them, but there's not that many of them. But when they leave Egypt with Moses, there's millions of them. Right? Don't miss the significance here. He is choosing something above and beyond just to, to be the leader of this people. He's choosing to, to receive the, the reproaches, the, the condemnations, the false accusations, the, the slander, all of those things that are associated with Christ. And why are they associated with Christ? Because the world hates him. They don't want anything to do with him. That is our natural estate. Okay, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater, more significant, better than the, the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He knew that whatever reward would come would far outweigh whatever hardship he encountered. And he continues on, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, but he endured, right? He didn't, he didn't fall asleep, he, didn't, he was steadfast, as seeing him who is invisible. He walked in faith, not by sight. We have Daniel doing the same thing. He esteems the reproach of Christ greater than, better than anything that he may face here in Babylon. Now, we have Darius, King Darius, and he's in a pickle. He's, he's stuck. Read with me verse 7. 
says, all the presidents of the kingdoms, the governors and the princes, the counselors, the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall make a, ask a petition of any man or God or man for 30 days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Hey, they've already acknowledged we can't trap Daniel in anything. The, the same kind of corruption that is within us is not within him. He is faithful and faultless. So the only way we're going to be able to trap him is in, in respect to the law of his God. Why? Because Daniel knows who is the ultimate sovereign. And he's going to walk in obedience to the God of creation just as we should unless... Right, I mean, even his even his higher powers that he has established may somehow have to be stood against as, as we honor God. And we've talked about that as we were in Romans thirteen not too long ago. So I'm going to defer to that discussion. Okay, and so this is what they said: they all get together, and 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 they're talking to Darius, and they say, "It's interesting." They all assemble, right? All the presidents, all the princes, they all get together, and they're like, "Hey, King, this is what we want to do." We want to make this decree, and we want it to be that nobody can make any petition of any god or man. Right? You can't, you can't ask anyone anything for 30 days, except the king. Can you imagine the impracticality? You can't make any petition, you can't, except for the king. This, this crosses all boards. You can't ask any God or man. And there's reasons that they factor that in here. And we'll get to that here in just a moment. But right, you don't ask your parents anything. You can only ask the king. Wives, don't ask your husbands anything. You can only ask the king for 30 days. You can't pray to your God. You can't do anything. And that's where they figure we got Daniel. Now, the Eastern idea of king is somewhat different than we have today, right? I mean, even though there's oppression, I mean, 1776 was sort of a statement against monarchy. I had a word, the, the oppression of a monarchy, uh, right? That was what it was. But there were still rights. There were still things that could be done. In Eastern idea of king, right? I mean, you, you are property of that sovereign, whoever he may be. You, he owns you. He owns the land. He owns... The, the, the animals, everything. And when you read that, right, here's God, and I'm going to give everything. And he states the land, the people, and the animals to Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm going to give them to whoever I choose to. Because that is the Eastern idea of what a king is. It's not our Western idea where there's still some rights and some freedoms. And no, it's, that's what it is. And furthermore, the Persians believed that the king was the representative or the incarnation uh, even sometimes uh, of one of their pagan gods, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name, but it starts with, a, with an O and ends with a Z and a D, right? Here he is, he's God. And so what they're doing is, listen, Darius, you've come in, we're, we're here to counsel you, and what we want you to do is make this decree because we need to let everybody know that you really are this God in, in the flesh. No, no, no man or God could be prayed to except for you. And it's really, the debate was the exaltation of the worship, the appeal to his pride, that you would be worthy of worship, that you would be, that was what they were appealing to for Darius. 
First John chapter two, there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. And so here we have the same idea. I mean, this is similar to what Nebuchadnezzar fell into, right? Look, here's Babylon. This is my, this is my temple. This is what, this is the monument to my majesty. He's what he said. Uh, Belshazzar was condemned by Daniel for the same thing that he fell into the same pride. And here's the same thing being pitched to Darius and he falls for it. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So here we have these three things, and there are three general categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that sort of sums up for us in, in real simplistic cate categorical form the nature of our sinfulness. It's going to appeal to the pride of our life, and that's sort of what they're doing here with Darius. It's going to appeal to the lust of our eyes, those things that we see that, that we would lust after. Uh, it, that, that's where we're at. And Darius falls for this. He says, that sounds pretty good. That seems like we should really, we can really see, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm a great. I am really the manifestation of this deity and people will worship me. They'll have to pray. It's an appeal to his pride. In Revelation chapter 2, as the angel of the, of the Lord is, is there speaking, uh, to the church at Ephesus. Okay, under the angel of the church of Ephesus, write chapter 2, verse 1 These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou cannot bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience. For my name's sake, has labored and has not fainted. I and mean, here's the church at Ephesus. He says, listen, you've got a lot of good things going for you. There's a lot happening here. Right? You're sensitive to injustice. You're careful to watch out for those who are claiming to be apostles but are lying. It's not true. You've labored and not fainted. You've continued in with those efforts. Nevertheless, he says, I have somewhat against thee. Because thou hast love, left thy first love. You've left, left your first love. Right here, here it is. And, and it's really, it's a speaking to Jesus Christ. He says, remember where, therefore, from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. And while we're not speaking about it directly by way of application, right? Remember from where we are fallen and repent. Right here we were. We accept Christ. We have this zeal and this passion, this desire to serve him. He is a consuming uh, entity. If I, and consuming is the wrong word, but it's, it's our focus. That might be a better way to say it. Our focus. We're seeking his kingdom first. We're standing there in faith. And it's because we know and we've seen 
We were just there where we had come from. We've just received the forgiveness of God. We've just been reconciled and brought into the family of God. All of that is new and fresh. But here, this church in Ephesus, and maybe us, I think these churches are largely representative of people and other things here in, in our time. If nothing else, I think there is other, other stuff there. But by way of application, as I said, it says, remember from where you've fallen. Whether it's the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, or the, the other third thing that we read in First John. Whatever those things are, as I said, those categorical categorizations of our sin nature, they shift and they become a focus. We have to guard against that. It's something that's active that we are engaged in. It's part of, part of the process of growing in the Lord. But here this church in Ephesus has, has let some of those things slip. Not everything, and, and he, he commends them for the things that they're doing well. But he says, this is the biggest thing, that, that, that you've left your first love. So either a couple of options, right? That number one, you're, you're doing good things, but the reason you're doing them for is less than sincere. And I don't know if that's the case or not. Nobody really does except God. Or maybe we're just doing things for the, the recognition and the acknowledgement of that, whatever it may be. Or we've let them slip all together. Those things that were important, that, were, that, that we were actively engaged in in the past, have gone by the wayside in the effort to pursue other things. And obviously those things would not have the same import or same uh, precedent in our lives or shouldn't have the same in our lives as our love for Christ. They've supplanted him. They've deposed him from the position of first love and, and made him second or at best. We have, this, we have Darius and he's in this pickle. He's stuck. And he's there because this appeal to his pride has been made. And just because you and I are believers doesn't mean that we're not somehow tempted by some of the same things. And we got to be watchful. We want to be careful that we're not like the church at Ephesus, where our first love has somehow been made second best. And I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about, you know, X, Y, and Z makes you holy or righteous. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is making sure that we're walking in faith, that we are trusting in the Lord, that we are seeking his kingdom first and his righteousness above all else for his glory. We jump back to Daniel chapter 6. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was sore displeased. So, so Dan, Darius hears the plan. Hey, that sounds really good. We're going to write it down in the law, and it can't be changed. And here it is. And they make this petition. And then all these guys get together. They all get together, and they go watch Daniel pray. And they know that that's what's going to happen. And we're going to get to that here in just a moment. but. In verse 14, it says, Then the king, when he heard these words, because they come and they bring their accusation of Daniel to the king, they were sore, he was sore displeased with himself. 
Darius wasn't upset at anyone except for himself because he knew he'd been had. He knew he'd been duped. He knew that they played to his baser nature and that he had succumbed to it. And that as a result, somebody that he was familiar with and trusted at the very least, and I think that there's some indication that he and Daniel may have been friends, is going to suffer. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. He sought some means where there was some wiggle room in the law, and they wouldn't have to execute Daniel. And then in verse 16, he himself, the king commanded, because this is what he has to do. He's the king. Command, and they brought Daniel, and they cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. We're going to unpack that statement beginning next week, but Darius is in a pickle. His pride has been appealed to. He's submitted to that. He's yielded to this unreasonable decree because it made him feel good about himself. And now Daniel is going to suffer. And he does whatever he can, but he can't prevent it. And he has to himself give, cast the judgment that put him in, put him in the den. Now, verse 10, we pick up with Daniel. This is all going on behind Daniel's back. We pick up with Daniel. It says, now, when Daniel knew that the writings were signed, I mean, he's one of the guys who's in charge. He's going to know about the new laws. And he gets a copy, right? He gets the memo. And he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. This is not an act of defiance, but this is an act of obedience to God. Remember, Daniel knew who he was submitted to first and foremost. He knew that God was, in fact, the highest sovereign and that he had to be obedient to the other higher powers that God had established unless it was something that would cause him to sin. And effectively, they're saying, we're going to only worship Darius. We're going to give him the position of God for this 30-day period. And Daniel says, I cannot do that. I'm going to have to pray to God. And this was his common practice. I mean, it says that he did this before time. They knew that they would catch him praying. They knew that he would be with his windows open like he always did, praying before his God. Because if he's so faultless over here in, in this civic realm, he's going to be faultless over here in his religious realm, and he's not going to change anything. They knew they would catch him, and they did. At one of the three times per day that he set aside to pray. Turns me to Hebrews chapter 4. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a high, have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
This was Daniel's common practice. He was able by faith to come directly into the throne room of grace, directly into the presence of God, just as, and, and even to a greater degree, you and I, not looking forward to something that is yet to come, the fulfillment of the offering, the covering, the, the, the excuse me, not the covering, the forgiveness of sin and the reconciliation of relationship. We're looking back on it. How much greater access would you and I have as God would symbolize in the temple and in the tabernacle with the veil between the holy of holies and the holy place that that way in was not yet open. And yet when Jesus Christ was crucified, it says that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing now the direct and ready access that we have through his sacrifice and that alone. We come into the throne room of grace in time of trouble. And the, the, the staggering thing is this, that as we were talking about persecution and hardship, we're talking about uh, false accusation and all of those things. It says that we have a high priest, which, which is touched. He's experienced the same feelings of our infirmities. He was in all ways tempted as we were, yet he was without sin. That doesn't mean that Jesus, Jesus faced every single temptation that you are going to face in your life. He had his own set of temptations, but what it means is that he understands. He knows what it's like to be faced with temptation. He knows what it's like to be, and, and people ask, and they, they get into these theological conundrums. Well, if Jesus is God, could he be tempted? You know, whatever. Don't go there. It's ridiculous. The Bible says he was tempted. He was tempted. He understands. He experienced the frailty of our flesh and every degree that it was to be experienced in yet was without sin. We have a high priest who knows what it's like, who has been there, and he's there with us even now. And as a result of that, he says, let us come boldly. We're not coming in with, with trepidation and fear and shame. We're coming in boldly, knowing that there is help and empathy in, that, in the presence of God. Right, it isn't, it isn't that we come in and, and, you know, cower in the corner, just waiting to be acknowledged, and then all of a sudden, well, Lord, I've got this thing going on, and we're, we're ashamed, and, and we're fearful that we're going to be rebuked and, and just dealt with harshly. And that isn't what the scene is like. But I think all too often, that's how we perceive it. It says that we can come in boldly because Jesus Christ himself knows what it was like. that he is a high priest that went through the same temptations but was without sin. Therefore, he understands the hardship. He understands the difficulty that we may experience as we strive to honor him, as we experience false accusation and persecution and hardship and scorn and mockery. He's been there and done that. Therefore, we come in boldly to the throne of grace, knowing that we can there obtain mercy and grace in our time of need. Not going in with the wringing of hands, just hoping and wishing that, man, if only God would, he will. There is grace. There is mercy in those times of trouble. It may not be the way we think it should be because his ways are higher than our ways but it is there to be found nonetheless.
In Acts chapter 5, we have a couple of examples, and I sort of alluded to them earlier. Uh, but in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, <clears throat> when Peter is asked, you know, in, in verse 28, did we not clearly command you not to preach in the name of Jesus? Peter responds and he says, listen, we ought to obey God rather than men. He, he doesn't really even answer the question. He says, listen, we're going to obey God rather than men. And that's a very significant statement. And it was significant to the audience that was there as we jump down to verse 40 through 42. And to them, they agreed when they had called the apostles and beaten them. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Okay. Peter understood who was in charge and who he was ultimately to be submitted to. Just as Daniel knew ultimately who was in charge and who he was to be submitted to, even if that meant he was going to be put in the lion's den. Even here, Peter and, and the other apostles knew that, that even it meant possibly death for them. And it says, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Here's Daniel at the throne. And what is he, I mean, in part, what I'm convinced, part of what he's praying about, what he's doing there is he's just communing with the Lord. But in addition to that, there's the idea that he's confessing the sins of the nation of Israel. We pick that up later in the book of Daniel. That happens. But here he is. He's also, I'm, in, I'm certain, looking with faith to, to he who he knows he must be submitted to, looking for grace and mercy in time of trouble. Just as Peter and the other apostles, those who were charged not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ, clearly trusted in the Lord more than in more. We may not, and this is what I want to close with, we may not be faced with a literal lion's den. We may not be faced with jail. We may not be faced with a certain persecution or, or being put to death as a result of remaining faithful to God and remaining witnesses of Christ. But here's the thing, because temptation is common, because all these things we've talked about this moment, just briefly, we might be tempted to yield or to submit our faith to the whims of men for other reasons. For other reasons. You think about Adam and Eve in the garden. They weren't faced with death. They weren't faced with persecution. They weren't even faced with mockery or scorn. But their trust in their creator, who they knew well, was put aside because somebody was cast doubt. It may be something seemingly insignificant. It may be something small. It may be something that, you know, I just want to fit in or, or whatever it may be. But whatever the circumstance is, whatever our lion's den may be, we can't be ashamed. God is faithful. God 
is there. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And I know it almost sounds trite. It sounds condemning even to say we, we cannot be ashamed. But it is the truth. We don't need to be ashamed. We have the truth of God's word. We have the creator of the universe. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your goodness to us. God, I thank you that that where we live, that in our country, we're not faced with a literal lion's den. But Lord, whatever things we may encounter that would cause us to somehow yield or submit our faith to something other than you, God, I pray for your grace that we might stand against it, that, Lord, we may be unwavering, that we may be steadfast. And God, by by your grace, I thank you that you've brought us together in the group that we are, the fellowship that we enjoy, Lord, that we might bear those burdens with one another, that we may come alongside and, and be those who would encourage and provoke into love and to good works. Lord, I thank you for our body. I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for his priesthood that he exercises on our behalf, Lord, having come and been in the flesh for the purpose of dying and while in the flesh, Lord, being tempted and being experiencing the hardship and the heartache and the, the difficulty that we encounter, Lord, for his glory. And Lord, as a result of that, his grace and mercy and love and providing that way and providing that that means where we can come into his presence to find the grace and the mercy that is necessary. Without any fear of retribution, without fear of hardship from him, without fear of uh, Lord's scorn or, or somehow damaging our relationship with our Father. I thank you, Lord, for that, for the certainty that we have of that relationship. We praise you, Lord, and as we have opportunity to sing adoration and praise to who you are and for what you've done, Lord, I pray that you would receive it as the offering of our lips. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.